I'm sure you've heard it said that Christians live in the world, but are not of the world, which isn't a Bible verse, by the way. Um, That's another of those popular Christian slogans we talked about last week. But what Christians mean when we invoke that slogan is that though we live in this fallen world, uh, in a particular culture, we live in a particular context, yet we no longer adopt this world's godless values or godless allegiances. So yes, we live in this world as Canadian Christians. We're going to Tim Hortons, we're playing hockey, we're watching hockey, we're eating poutine, we're wearing toques, we're all very polite. We're in the world. And we're developing meaningful relationships with all kinds of people. And yet, by God's grace, we're no longer part of our culture's rebellion against its creator and king. We're no longer on the side of the cosmic anarchists looking to topple over God's royal throne. That's what we once were. But now we've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. And so we're maintaining a balancing act between living out our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, being obedient to him in all things, and living in this culture, in this time period in which the Lord has sovereignly placed us. And that balancing act is becoming more precarious the farther our culture departs from its Judeo-Christian roots. The moral world taken for granted in 1960, uh, has virtually disappeared in North America. The sexual revolution has now become our mainstream culture. And it's enabled people to cast off almost all sexual restraint, all sexual inhibition. So long as the activity is between consenting adults, anything goes. Uh, There are no boundaries, there are no rules, there is only license. If it feels good, if it makes you happy, if you're being true to yourself, then do it. And this isn't related only to matters of sexual partners or sexual habits. Everything involved in our understanding of gender, the family, marriage, Life in the womb, even the adoption of children, is being radically challenged and changed both in the courts and in society. Our culture is in a massive state of flux concerning all these things. The sexual revolution of the 1960s has become our mainstream culture. And anyone who does not celebrate the advances of the sexual revolution, people such as Bible-believing Christians, are viewed as sexually repressed and puritanical. That's what we're considered to be at best. If somebody says, oh, you're repressed, I mean, you're getting getting off easy. (laughs) Many see Bible-believing Christians as hateful, intolerant bigots, people whose offensive views have no place whatsoever in the public arena or in academia, or in the media, or on the campus. Christian, the people living in this country, this province, this city, they don't care a fig if you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they care mightily if you believe in a biblical view of marriage. 
they, might, they care mightily if you believe in the biblical view of gender, the biblical view of sexuality. That's becoming more and more deeply, deeply offensive. Make a biblically faithful statement in the wrong context, in front of the wrong people, and you might very well lose your job. And so the pressure is to say nothing at all. If we're confronted, we're tempted to cave. Brothers and sisters, we need to know the stakes. It's essential, it's essential that we understand how the gospel and the glory of God relate to our sexuality as men and women, men and women made in God's image, redeemed by Jesus Christ, and filled with his spirit. We want to be a people, New City, who flee from sexual immorality and who glorify God with our bodies, but not mindlessly. We want to do so with understanding, with theological, biblical understanding. Not because we're cultural conservatives who pine for the the family values of the 1950s. Uh, Brothers and sisters, keep that mentality far, far from your thinking. Rather, we must be a people who point to Holy Scripture and say, this is how God wants his people to live and why? Both those things. We're to be 2 Corinthians 10.5 type Christians. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We're God's agents in this. Taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Last week, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 14, we saw that the bodily resurrection of Jesus underscores the sanctity and future of the believer's body. Which means, in going to prostitutes, the Corinthian Christians were renouncing the lordship of Christ over their bodies and denying the resurrection life to come. They were saying... Look, since every person must ultimately die and lose their body to the dust because there is no bodily resurrection, then God must not care much about physical bodies. And if God doesn't think much of the physical body in the age to come, then why would he care what we do with our bodies now, right? So eat, drink, and be merry. Have sex with prostitutes. It's fine because the physical body figures very little in God's moral economy. New City, sexual morality has nothing to do with cultural consensus, your personal opinion, or the latest ruling of the federal court. The sexual ethic for the Christian is absolutely linked to our union with the resurrected Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our anticipation of the bodily resurrection, and living to the glory of God. And be we married or single, male or female, Christians attracted to the same gender or Christians attracted to the opposite gender. These truths must inform every aspect of how our sexuality is expressed and how it must never be expressed. Point number one in your bulletin. Brothers and sisters, flee from sexual immorality and glorify God with your bodies. This is the only point in the sermon today. And and notice how I phrase this one point. The ultimate reason why Christians should flee sexual immorality, the ultimate purpose behind all these commands, which Paul states explicitly in verse 20, is that we might honor or better 
glorify God. Now, we need to think about that for a moment because the apostle could have issued his ethical instruction to the church in the form of an authoritative command. Do this. Don't do that. But why, Paul? Because God says so. Just shut up and obey. Instead, God, through his apostle, talks to the Corinthians and to us on the level of heart motivation and theological truth which makes perfect sense. After all, he's talking to Christians with regenerate hearts. He's talking to people who love the gospel. He's talking to people who love God, who love his holiness, people who want to glorify God in all things first. That's his audience. The new covenant Christian ethic doesn't begin with rules and boundaries. Because rules and boundaries don't resonate with Christians, though sometimes we think they will. Christ-exalting, gospel-rooted, spirit-empowered, Bible-informed, joyful freedom to live a holy life never, ever begins with rules. Deep things need to happen on the level of the soul first, don't they? Through the power of God's transforming spirit, our foremost desires in life must be changed. They must be brought into line with the scriptures. That's what Phil was praying this morning. Our desire above all else in this life is to see God glorified in our life and in the world. That is where Christian obedience truly begins, not rules. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members or the limbs and organs of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members, the limbs and organs of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Distill that to its essence, and what do we have? Union with Christ is utterly incompatible with union with a prostitute. But even that can be misunderstood. Christians can misunderstand what Paul is really getting at in this passage because we zero in on that one word, prostitute. And so we narrow down the context to one kind of sexual sin, fornication, with a prostitute. But if we do that, then our interpretation will be far too narrow, as well this text application to our Christian life. I'm going to explain why in just a moment, but we could just as easily substitute boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance or mistress or someone we hooked up with last night through Tinder or Hinge for prostitute in this passage. Don't let that one word throw you. This whole section is embedded within a broader section focusing on on sexual immorality in general. Fleeing sexual immorality and glorifying God with our bodies. Bodies that are united to Jesus Christ. Paul is not, not saying Christians must never have sex with a prostitute because prostitutes are a particular bad sort of person. That has nothing to do with this text. Paul's teaching Christians to flee all immoral sex. Every sexual union, 
outside the covenanted, lawfully wedded, one flesh marital union of one man and one woman. Now, the argument in verses 15 to 17 is very tight. So let me just give us a a bird's eye view of this first. It's sort of distilled to its essence. Union with Christ excludes union with a prostitute. There, There are two statements here, really, and then a conclusion. So we need to see the logic to follow it. Statement number one, the physical bodies of Christians are the limbs and organs of Jesus himself. Just mull on that for a second. The physical bodies of Christians are the limbs and organs of Jesus himself. Statement number two, as taught in Genesis 2.24, sexual intercourse unites two human beings in a one flesh bond. Put those two theological realities together, and what does it mean? Sexual intercourse with a prostitute unites the body parts of Christ with that prostitute. A Christian having sexual intercourse with a prostitute or with anyone who is not their husband or wife has the unconscionable result of involving Jesus' body, which is united to that Christian, in a sinful act. Let's break this down verse by verse. Verse 15. Do you not know, that's one of the six times he uses that phrase in this chapter, do you not know, because you ought to know, that your bodies are members, that they are the limbs and organs of Christ himself? Okay, let's imagine a a workplace scenario for a moment. We're all back in the office. It's coffee break time. Remember coffee break time? Back at the office with your colleagues. It seems like eons ago. But uh, during the break, someone engages you in conversation. They're not being antagonistic, all right? They're just being curious, hey, you're a Bible-believing Christian, aren't you? And your your eyelid twitches involuntarily. You're you're calm on the outside, but inside your brain is screaming, oh, no, where are they going with this? Yes, I I am a Bible-believing Christian, you reply. Well, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not trying to embarrass you or anything, but Christians have a pretty conservative sexual ethic, don't they? Now your brain is screaming, oh, no, why that question? My worst fears are being realized. (laughs) Lord, give me grace. Um, Yes, I suppose we do look pretty conservative. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you don't have affairs. You don't sleep around, right? You believe God says Christians are only to have sex with their spouse. True? Yes, that's true. Well, what I want to know is why? Why does God command that? Why are Christians only supposed to have sex with their spouse? What rationale does the Bible give? Okay, this is being offered up on a silver platter, right? This is a slow underhand pitch, low and outside, just to smash it out of the park. We open up the Bible app on our phone and turn to which passage? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's all here. This is where we begin. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members, the limbs and organs of Christ himself? Now, Paul talks about the church being the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a very famous passage. We'll come to that down the line. Um, But his concern in that text is with the relationship of the members of the body to one another. 
What we're seeing here is another facet of the Christian's union with Jesus. Our members, our limbs and organs, are the limbs and organs of Jesus himself. We're united to Jesus. Verse 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. As biblical scholar John Murray writes, this is not the kind of union that we find in the Godhead, three persons in one God. This is not the kind of union we find in the person of Christ, two natures in one person. It is not simply the union of feeling, affection, understanding, mind, heart, will, and purpose. Here we have union which we are unable to define specifically. But it is union of an intensely spiritual character, consonant with the nature and work of the Holy Spirit, so that in a real way, beyond uh, surpassing our power of analysis, Christ dwells in his people and his people dwell in him. And one part of this glorious teaching of being united to Jesus in faith by the Holy Spirit is that the believer's physical body comprises Christ's own limbs and organs. And this obviously has a direct bearing on sex. Christians may not take away or tear away from Christ what is united to him and make them members of a prostitute. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, God forbid. Sex with a prostitute has the unconscionable result of involving Christ's body in a sinful act. In going to prostitutes, the Corinthians are not only renouncing the lordship of Jesus over their bodies and denying the resurrection life to come, but they're acting in a way that sullies and even does violence to Jesus' body. Shall I then tear from Christ his limbs and organs and make them the limbs and organs of a prostitute? You could read it that way. Never. Such an idea of such a foul sin must be absolutely horrifying to the believer. It's so horrifying, beloved, that it compels us to flee sexual immorality. Because the only way such an unholy union can take place is through the Christian's sexual immorality. That's the only way it can happen. Verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh. And this verse spells out the reason why a Christian union with Jesus excludes any thought of a physical, sexual union with anyone who is not our spouse. Whoever unites themselves with a prostitute in a sexual relationship, be that, or our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our fiancé, or someone we met last night in a bar, is, in, is one, one with that person's body. The two will become one flesh. Many people, both today and in, time, in Paul's time, think of sex as a casual thing, don't they? It's casual, it's passing, it ships passing in the night. But God's view of sex could not be more different. The two will become one flesh. Which means there's more than just a biological function 
taking place during sexual intercourse, much more. Denny Burke, I think, raises a good point. Notice that Paul grounds his sexual ethic in Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 is the most important foundational text about marriage in the entire Bible. When Jesus and the Apostle Paul set out new covenant norms for gender, for marriage, for sexuality, they never, ever appeal to polygamist kings such as David or Solomon, or to the patriarchs such as Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Have you noticed that? Never. They don't do it. For all the importance those Old Testament figures have in the history of redemption, Jesus and Paul do not look to any of them as the paradigm for understanding human marriage. Instead, Jesus and Paul, they go back again and again to the pre-fall monogamous union of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. Because in God's mind... That's the norm for human sexuality and marriage. Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Brother, sister, I want to ask you, are you sexually tempted uh, at school or at work? Is there someone at work or in your apartment building, perhaps, or a neighbor on your street who's been flirting with you, and you're feeling sexually drawn toward this person. Perhaps you see the very real specter of fornication or even adultery in your life. Perhaps you find yourself going out of your way to run into this person and to talk to them. Perhaps you're deliberately putting yourself in the place of sexual temptation because you're lonely. You want attention. You enjoy feeling desired. You enjoy feeling sexy because you're plain selfish. The heart wants what it wants and you want sex. Or perhaps you're not just tempting yourself. Perhaps you are actively indulging in sexual immorality. You're living a double life, and you're hoping that no one at New City finds out. Far from fleeing sexual morality, you're inviting it in. You're taking it home. Brother, sister, what biblical truth is being brought to bear in this situation? What perspective is informing your understanding of the eschatological reality you inhabit as a Christian? What biblical truths are informing your prayers in the face of sexual temptation? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Do you not know that whenever the believer engages their body in sexual immorality that brings them into a one-flesh union with any person, not just a prostitute, but any person they themselves are not in a one-flesh union with through the covenant of marriage, that they are involving Jesus' own limbs and organs in the illicit sinful act? Now you do. So the next time when the sweat is pouring off your face because you know sexual sin is within your grasp. 
what needs to keep you back is more than thoughts of, I need to uphold my evangelical tradition. I need to maintain the family values of my cultural conservatism. I need to follow the religious rules. What if my spouse or my kids found out? I could lose my job. Friend, all of that is going to crumble away like burnt paper. As are all the rules and boundaries you could care to impose on yourself. Brother, sister, your knowledge of God must grow. Knowing God better makes obedience to God more of a holy delight and makes sin more repugnant. Otherwise, you'll just be crawling up out of the pit of your sin by a pure force of your legal will. Christ-exalting, gospel-rooted, spirit-empowered, Bible-informed, joyful freedom to live a holy life never begins with rules. It starts with our hearts being enraptured with the glory, the glory of God. And as we become more and more entranced with the beauty of God's holiness, of his infinite glory and majesty, the more our knowledge of the Holy One grows, the more sexual immorality becomes more and more repulsive to us. Instead of indulging in sexual morality, instead of nibbling around the edges and seeing how close we can get, whatever, we, we will flee from it because we love Jesus Christ more than anything. But deep things need to happen on the level of our soul first. Through the power of God's transforming spirit, our foremost desires must be to honor, to glorify our God and Savior. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Take evasive action. This is a picture of physical escape, Christian. Run from the situation. Flee from the situation. Take a lesson from Joseph. Let me just read to you. Genesis 39, 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though, he, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her, the text says. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left the cloak in her hand and ran. He fled out of the house. All other sins a person commits, verse 18, are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually... Sins against their own body. Now, this is a notoriously tricky verse. There are legitimate questions as to who is saying what in verse 18b. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Is this another Corinthian slogan? Uh, or is Paul speaking for himself? Is he preaching truth here in this verse, part of the verse? The literature is voluminous, it's complex, and I'll be honest, at the end of the day, Pastor John can't say for certain. So I'm just going to play it safe, 
and follow the vast majority of Bible translators, the ESV, the NAB, NASB, NIV, NLT, and the RSV, and more besides, uh, who all believe that this is the apostle speaking in verse 18b. If we take that approach, the basic point is clear. Sexual immorality is to be fled because it is uniquely body-defiling. Sexual immorality is unique. No other kind of sin is like it because all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but not so sexual immorality. Now, Paul's not saying that only sexual immorality damages the body because cutting, suicide, drug addiction, that does that as well, as well as eating mass quantities of cheesecake. Rather, what I think he's getting at is that only sexual immorality establishes a one-flesh union that is against the body. No other kind of sin does that. Sexual sin is against the body because it's uniquely body-joining, and so uniquely body-defiling. We sin against the body in so many ways when we indulge in sexual immorality. And as we saw last week, sexual immorality is a sin against our body's rightful ownership. The the, the believer's body is under the authority, the mastery of Christ the Lord. No other sin threatens to put our body under the mastery of someone else. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, remember? And in going to prostitutes, the Corinthian Christians are renouncing the lordship of Christ over their physical bodies. The body is also a temple of the Holy Spirit, verse 19, and was purchased by God, verse 20. So look at your bulletins. You can see problem number four and then the gospel solution. Kind of getting, again, a a bird's eye view of this. Some Corinthian Christians are excusing sexual immorality because it occurs outside the body. Gospel solution. Your body matters because God will raise it up like he raised the Lord. Your body is a member of Christ, so you should not make it a member of a prostitute. You do not have the right to do whatever you want with your body because God owns it. And he owns it because he redeemed you at the cost of his son's life. So glorify God with your body by not committing sexual immorality. So you see how the gospel applies directly to this. So yes, even though our bodies are our own, our bodies more properly belong to God. We just have to start thinking that way. This is a temple of God's spirit. Purchased through redemption, a body whose limbs and members are the very limbs and members of Jesus himself. Which means the unique nature of sexual sin is that one sins against one's own body as viewed in terms of its place in redemptive history. And as I say that, you may be thinking, what in the world did you just say? Let me explain this using a classic John Bell illustration. You've heard this before. If you ever hear another pastor using this illustration, he got it from me, okay? This is an original. You've heard this before, though. In the movie Back to the Future, Marty McFly goes back in time, and he accidentally keeps his parents from meeting and falling in love, which means he's in danger now of not being born. And so his body begins to fade throughout the movie. The space-time continuum has been disrupted and brought into paradox. There's been a time warp perversion. In Back to the Future Part 2, 
the movie's villain, Biff Tannen, he travels back in time and gives his younger self a sports almanac that he can bet on for the next 50 years, which then creates an alternate timeline that skews into a reality where Biff is now a multimillionaire and Marty's father has been murdered. Again, the space-time continuum has been disrupted and brought into paradox. There's been a time warp perversion. As we move now from the ridiculous to the sublime, this is something like what we read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here we have, brothers and sisters, an eschatological salvation historical paradox brought about by the Christians' sexual immorality. Here we are, this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of Pentecost, enjoying all the glorious new covenant bodily privileges we enjoy. Our body is a temple of God's spirit, a body purchased through the redemption of Jesus Christ, a body whose limbs and members are the limbs and members of Jesus himself, united to him in faith by the Holy Spirit, united to Jesus in his resurrection, a body under the mastery of Jesus Christ, which will be raised incorruptible on the last day. Body, 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 body. And then we, have, we unite that same body with the limbs and organs of a prostitute or anyone else who is not our legally wedded spouse. Immoral sex. God forbid. God forbid. Verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And that verse is not saying, so don't smoke cigarettes, Christian, because they damage your lungs and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's probably the worst example of decontextualization in all Christian hermeneutics, and I hear it all the time. Verse 19 has nothing to do with lung cancer. No, Paul's saying, don't be involving your bodies, the very limbs and members of Jesus himself, in an eschatological time warp perversion that denies the blessings of the new covenant and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. Our bodies are not our own to do with as we wish, sexually speaking. Yet another movie illustration. Do you remember the scene in Kill Bill, Volume 2, where Kung Fu master Pai Mei, he fights with his pupil, the bride, played by Uma Thurman. In the course of the fight, he locks her arm behind her back, and then he, he threatens to chop it off. She begs him not to, and he says, okay, I'll have mercy, but this arm belongs to me now. It's no longer your arm. I could have left it chopped off and just lying in the dirt there, but I had mercy on you, so it's my arm now, and I want my arm to be good and strong. I want it to be able to punch through a block of wood at three inches. So get practicing, and don't complain to me when it hurts as your knuckles are breaking from punching the wood block over and over again because it's my arm now. Jesus is saying, that's my body now, Phil. That's my body, now Jill. That's my body, now Chelms. Your bodies are not your own to do with, as you wish in the matter of sexuality. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God. It would be unthinkable to pursue immoral sex in the Holy of Holies. But now, your physical body is the Holy of Holies. So you must not defile it. It must be kept pure. It is a sacred space. Verse 20, 
You were bought at a price. That's slave market language. Christian, God has redeemed you at the cost of his son's death. So he owns your body. Certainly, immoral sexual relations are a sin against other people. For example, for those who are married and have children, immoral sex is a traitorous sin against one's spouse and children. But even more fundamentally, immoral sexual relations are a sin against God himself because God owns our bodies. You were bought at a price, verse 20. 1 Peter 1.18 For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Brothers and sisters, Christ purchased us for God through his death, through his cross, through his blood. And Paul's point here is that even our bodies, our physical bodies, are included in that purchase. Our bodies are not our own to do with as we wish sexually. There are rules. 20b, therefore, honor or better translated, glorify God with your bodies. And with that verse, Paul brings the entire argument to its conclusion. This is the positive side of the command from verse 18. So flee from sexual immorality. Now the positive side, glorify God with your bodies. Immoral sex does not glorify God. Glorifying God is a way of feeling and thinking and acting that makes much of God. It shows that God is supremely great and good. It demonstrates that God is all wise, that he is all satisfying. We glorify God with our physical bodies when we use them as God intends. New City, because, of the, because the body is God's, we must not use it in illicit intercourse. God intends our bodies to be his temple, a place where his glory is set on unique display before the world. It must be pure. It must be pure. So let me close with two important implications. Uh, I take one from Gordon Fee and one from Denny Burke. The first is this. In a day where sexual immorality is being justified under every conceivable rationalization, the doctrine of the sanctity of the body and of the final resurrection of the body needs to be heard anew in the church. Too many Christians, and this may be a, a hobby horse, but it's a good hobby horse, but too many Christians think almost exclusively about their souls, both here and in eternity, and not their physical bodies. Alex and I are always trying to change the course of that it needs to change we all of us need to speak of the sanctity and the future of the physical human body we need to speak of that both in the church and in the world our bodies belong to god through the redemption of the cross and they are destined brothers and sisters for physical resurrection life Second, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is offering the church a model, I think, for recognizing and confronting ethical aberrations and deviations. 
Notice how Paul identifies the sinful deed and the theology, the biblical worldview that opposes that sinful deed, that condemns that sinful deed. He could have just simply laid down the law. He could have written to the Corinthians and simply told them to stop fornicating with prostitutes. I speak for God, so don't second-guess me. Just do what I tell you. Obey the rules. But his ethical concern is more expansive than that. Paul's interested not only in the deeds of the Corinthians, but also the theology behind those deeds. There is a worldview in play in the Corinthian church that cut against the gospel, and Paul is seeking to identify the deficiencies of that worldview for the Corinthian church, for his readers. And so related to this, this is very important, related to this in the situation of the Corinthians using prostitutes and the Corinthians wrongly surmising that trysts with prostitutes was a legitimate way to use the body according to its purpose, that just as the food is made for the stomach, so male and female bodies are made for sex. And as they observed the sexual complementarity of male and female bodies and construed that uh, from that observation that sex was the purpose of the body, we looked at all that last week. And all this, we see the limitations of applying reason to natural revelation. The fallen mind does not always make the correct ethical judgments based on observations of nature alone. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death which is why reason and science and biology and law is ultimately subject to the authority of Holy Scripture. Paul doesn't refute the obvious complementarity of male and female bodies. What he does is he quotes from Genesis 2.24 to show that promiscuity is not part of God's design for sex. He also argues on the basis of the gospel that the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord Jesus who promises to raise and renew our physical bodies. Paul's understanding, Paul understands God's purposes for the body, not merely by observing and deducing, but also by understanding the gospel, applying it to all of life and submitting to the authority of God's written revelation. And that needs to be true of all of us, New City. And we'll see this truth borne out time and again in chapter 7, which will begin next Sunday, Lord willing. Amen.